Hello and welcome to East General Broadcast, the podcast by the East of England Ambulance Service. I'm Jordan, the Patient Safety Integration Lead. Now, we've heard on this podcast before about how healthcare can learn a lot from aviation and how we can look at crew resource management, human factors and ergonomics and overall culture. But... What if we looked at a sector of aviation where the danger was increased a hundredfold and the pilots were never sure what they would be flying into or what they might need to do mid-flight? Then we start looking at jet fighters. Mandy Hickson was one of the first female jet fighter pilots in the RAF. She's flown in some of the most challenging theatres of combat in recent years and has had a front row seat to some of the world's biggest events, including the aftermath of 9-11. She's now a motivational speaker, coach and mentor for some of the biggest businesses in the country. We sit down with Emily Crosby, a newly qualified paramedic from East of England, to compare the thoughts, feeling and views of someone starting a career in a fast-paced environment with someone who's got lived experience of it. This is such a great conversation and really hammers home some key points around just culture, personal stress awareness and knowing when to say no to something you don't feel is right. I really enjoyed having these two on together and I hope you do as well. So thank you so much both for, for joining us today. I know that you're both very busy people, so I, I really do appreciate it. I wonder if we can start just with the kind of general introductions. Emily, can we start with you, if that's all right? Yeah, of course. So my name's Emily. I'm a paramedic and I qualified in June 2019. Thank you so much. But Mandy, what about you? So I used to be in the Royal Air Force. I was a pilot in the RAF flying Tornado GR4s. I left in 2011 retrained as a facilitator in human factors and performance and also do a lot of keynote speaking and I've recently written a book basically talking a lot about some of the errors that I've made throughout my time in the Air Force. (laughs) Okay that is one of the coolest introductions I think we've ever had. Um, So (laughs) a few people have said to me that they they wonder why we we brought you on this week. I wonder if you can kind of talk to us about how aviation looks at uh, safety, system safety and and errors, and then hopefully people have a bit more of an understanding. Yeah, so to give a little bit of a historical context, in the 1990s, technology was improving through the roof, and yet aeroplanes were crashing with an alarming stubbornness, should we say. And when they investigated into, look into it, they realised it was down to human error. So 75% of all accidents are down to human error. So they introduced an error avoidance programme called CRM, Crew Resource Management, uh, read across now to the NHS as TRM, Team Resource Management. And that was looking at 16 key areas which could make a difference to how humans interact, not just with each other, but with their environment as well. Everything from communication skills, decision making, situational awareness, stress management, fatigue and culture. So just to name a few. And we make that a mandatory training programme for every single person within aviation, be it military or commercial. And you have to undertake that taking uh, undertake that at the start of your career. And then you also do it every year. You go through on a, on a cycle of three years. So you'll cover all the 16 subjects over a three year period. And by doing so, we have seen our safety rate improve 
and improve and improve. And in 2017, we actually got to the point where we had not lost one, we did not have one aircraft incident where involved a loss of life in a jet, commercial jet aircraft, which is phenomenal when you think how much is going on in the flying side at that stage. So, yeah, that's the world in which I'm in. And that's why it's so relevant to the world of aviation, sorry, the world of medicine, because there's so many read acrosses when you think about human factors working at the the sharp end as well, decision making under pressure, especially like for your paramedics that are going out into different and unknown situations. So the read across is, is, is evident. Thank you so much for that really, really succinct uh, summary, Mandy. It, it is interesting that the similarities and uh, we've spoken about it before with Martin Bromley as well about how aviation seems to be years and years ahead of healthcare, but we are yeah. slowly being dragged into that world. So, Emily, you you are here because you're a newly qualified paramedic. I wonder, yeah. firstly, if you can just tell us a bit more about what it takes to become a paramedic and to be at the stage you're at, and also your kind of experiences of that frontline work and why you're so interested in in the kind of human factors element of it yeah of course so i uh, went to university for three years uh so i did my a levels went to uni i trained in london but i think being where i am now obviously it takes the qualification but i think some personality traits also but i think at some points that can lead to my downfall when it comes to human factors and i think it's so interesting when mandy talk about how much training there is in human factors because when I compare that to my time at university, although we did touch on it, it wasn't very, very emphasised. I think considering how much time and how many lives that could potentially save, perhaps that could look to be increased. But I think being out nearly a year, I have had to make some like tough decisions. I always try and do it within a team, within a crew, and I always share decision-making. However, I think sometimes the pressure of decision-making and the stress that I can then feel can sometimes lead to a decision that perhaps isn't the most appropriate. But yeah, so I think some a bit more emphasis on human factors towards and sort of learning stages whilst being at university would be would be very helpful. Mm. And and this is this is where I find it really interesting because both of you work in environments or have worked in environments where you think you're going into a certain situation, but actually things can deviate really, really quickly and have quite catastrophic consequences one way or the other. So Mandy, I wonder if you could just talk to us about the kind of processes that, that one goes through in, in your kind of line of work about going into a danger zone and really uh, assessing the threat as you go along and, and what your thought processes are and how you try and make the best decisions when you're also flying a jet fighter at 900 miles an hour. Yeah, so the very first thing that you'll do is you have a threat brief and you and that could be in the form of um, an intelligence report and things like that. So you've got two different types of threats. You've got observable threats, um, which can be known or unknown. Uh, so for a, so for a pilot, for example, a known observable threat would be we can see it's very windy. You've got a huge crosswind. Let's discuss what that as being a threat for the day. You've also got um, the latent threats or unobservable threats, which reside in any system or organisation that you're not aware of, which could be things like creeping fatigue. It could be stress levels. It could be organisational issues. It could be lack of money going being paid towards training and human factors training, for example. So you've got all of these different threats. So 
Before you actually get airborne on any said day, be it in the military or in the commercial sector, you will have a threat brief and you will discuss what are the biggest threats that we have at this moment in time. And you'll almost put them into a level of priority, really, to some degree, which I think is fantastic. And so it just means that you're so much more sort of up to speed and thinking about things before you actually go in, because you could be thinking, okay, so my biggest threat today is that it's a beautiful sunny day and there are no threats. So I'm going to be very complacent and I'm going to be very relaxed. That is a threat inside itself. So going back to the Martin Bromley, um, what he talks about a lot when he very sadly lost his wife, Elaine, it was the documentary that they made was called Just a Routine Operation. And I thought that said it all because it was that level potentially of complacency before you even went in because it was just the norm. And when you look at what's going on in the NHS at the moment, you know, there are still errors being made, but it's about adapting the culture to really try to learn from those mistakes. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's interesting that in the NHS, you know, because it's about people and it's it's about people's lives, the kind of fear of raising, you know, raising an incident is is quite palpable. Is that fair to say, Emily? Yes, I think I think it's very powerful. I think it's obviously also very very important. I think learning from mistakes and making sure others don't repeat them, and also the person that perhaps has not performed their best, it's also important that they learn from it also. But I think any learning to come out of a mistake is very very valuable. And I think I think I'm I'm lucky to say that within the ambulance service and particularly in my area that I would not be. I think in any way embarrassed or ashamed to talk about something that perhaps didn't go as well as it could have or if I felt like I've made a mistake I do think they're very open and very able to sort of support my development but I think learning to come out of making mistakes is is, is the most valuable thing. Uh, definitely and that that kind of leads us on to something else which I'd like to talk about which is Mandy about how one how you you as a person absorb the feedback that you've that you're being given because uh we we talk quite a lot about giving and receiving feedback in itself is a skill it's a skill to give and a skill to receive because sometimes it can be really difficult but also what you what you and the RAF or aviation in general kind of do to complete the circle of learning um because that always seems to be a challenge in the NHS how do we actually put the learning back into the organization hence my role yeah hence your role Jordan absolutely so I've been doing a lot of work in this field recently, actually, because I think there's a lot to be said about how we debrief in the aviation world. So the very first thing that you need to do, I think, when you're looking at a debrief, because we debrief after every single trip. It doesn't matter if it's for training purposes or operational purposes, you debrief and it becomes just part of your daily routine. And I think that in itself is the the important aspect. So it could be a quick one. It could be potentially just a whirlwind debrief to say, gosh, what went well? What went badly? And what do we need more of? You know, something really quick that you're trying to capture that information. Or it could be a more structured debrief whereby you put out a scope and some objectives at the start. And then you perhaps go through the debrief funnel. And we always say, you know, what happened? What were the facts? Now, you can establish that in the form of a timeline or... But basically, you're trying to pull out three or four key elements. You don't want to be overwhelming because if there's too much information, it just gets lost. So perhaps three, potentially four key elements uh, as facts. And then through really good facilitation, 
And not everyone has that skill to facilitate asking these open questions. How, what, where, why, but not who. And the reason you don't ask who is because it's not about who did something wrong. It's about what happened. It's it's basically about the the circumstances and the behaviours that are exhibited. And if you find it's getting more personal, then you bring it back to the what happened again. So try to always depersonify it by bringing it back to the reality of the facts of the situation. And by doing that, we've got some now, now we've got some nice causes as to why things happened. But what you're trying to do is say, okay, we've got these three or four elements. Let's have the how. How can we be better? What's the cure? So the facts, the cause, and then the cure. And that's really, you want, for each of those elements, you say, okay, what, what can we do about that one? What's the point of action to move forward on it as well? And I think by having this really structured debrief, formulaic, it's normal, it's routine, it's not out of the ordinary. And I think therefore people just accept it for what it is and it's just part of the process. And that's how we can really feed things back in much quicker. Definitely. And I, I, I love everything you're saying and I wish that we could could bring that in more more into the ambulance service. The challenge that we have, and I'm, I'm sure Emily will correct me if I'm wrong, that once once a crew finish, they confirm with the control room that they're ready for the next job and then they're sent straight away to the next instant because we have we have a stack of jobs that are waiting and we have a crew there that's ready to go but Emily just based off of off of what you've heard and kind of your experiences what would you say that there are kind of quick wins to to feedback while you're while you're working you know kind of while you're while you're doing your job yeah, I think me and my crewmate especially always try and debrief after jobs, even if it's us sort of discussing it at break time or lunchtime or on the way to the next one. We do try and have a chat about what went well, perhaps what could have been improved. And I think sometimes if the job is um, a little more larger or requires sort of more resources, then sometimes there are debriefs that happen sort of at hospital, sort of following completion of the job and the person being handed over to hospital. Sometimes we have a little chat in the back of the ambulance and sort of, work out what everyone thought went well and perhaps what could have been a little bit better. I think also I'm quite a reflective person. So I think one thing is me thinking about a job whilst at work, but another thing is that I'll probably mull it over at home. Sometimes I write sort of reflective essays based on how I was feeling or when I think things could have been a little bit better. I think um, I think how Mandy was saying it's important to do the sort of how and the, the what as opposed to the who. I think we have made some debriefs I've been involved in a little bit more successful because I think sometimes I always feel it very personally. And I think then that in itself probably requires some reflection. But I think if something hasn't quite gone to plan or could have been a little bit better, then um, I do very much feel that. So I think moving forward, it'd be a little bit better, more successful for me to think more on the line of sort of how and, and what and, and then what can be done to improve it. Yeah, definitely. Because the, you know, the work that... Y- you all do is is um you're proud of it you're proud to wear the uniform you're proud to go out and and care for people so when when something happens you know there is a bit of a pride dent in some cases and that's something that that i think mandy with your your kind of advice is is really important and i think hopefully people can take away and and start using a bit more emily i want to stick with you for a minute and i want to talk about stress because the way that we look at stress in in the ambulance service, I, I think there's two different types. I think there's the the creeping stress, you know, your 
your prolonged job where your time on scene is is an hour two hours because you can't yeah. take a patient to hospital but they don't want to go and there's there's lots of bits mm -hmm. going on and then there's the sudden stress the traumatic cardiac arrest the the big road traffic collision that kind of thing and I, I just wonder whether we can get kind of your view on what it's like to experience those especially especially being relatively new to the role and any sort of tips or advice you have and then we'll ask Mandy a sort of similar question. Yeah I think as time has gone on I think my ability to sort of deal and manage with stress has definitely improved I think my ability to sort of handle stress on scene like you're saying if it's a longer job or I would like to convey someone perhaps they would they would like to stay at home I think I can cope with that stress a little bit better as opposed to a sudden this has happened the situations change very very rapidly because suddenly you're involved in a completely different situation than you thought you were perhaps I think sometimes my bandwidth can be a little bit overloaded in those situations and there are times where I've not been able to perform my best but I've always been fortunate there is a team around me that things that need to be done are still being done but I can feel I can feel when the stress is getting a little bit too much for me and I can feel when so I can't complete some tasks. I think it's important that in those moments, knowing that there are enough people to sort of facilitate everything else that needs to happen, I just take a moment because I know that I can do it. I know that I know what I'm doing. It, you know, it's what I've trained for and I do really, really love work. I know that it's something I can do, but I think sometimes just taking a second to reaffirm that I'm this is you know what I can do is is very important knowing that there is enough people in a situation that everything that needs to be done still can be done I think at uni we did have sort of you may feel stress and especially sort of conflict management training they talk a lot of stress but I think everyone deals with it in a very different way and feels in a very different way and I think over time I've got a little better at perhaps feeling stressed without looking too stressed. Whereas I think in the earlier days, I could be a little bit more all over the place or, you know, I'm still able to do the job. However, I think now I'm better able to control the sort of emotion of it. Because I think when I'm feeling stressed, I then worry that other people will lose confidence in me and sort of my ability to, to do my role. And I think that then sort of puts an added pressure on but I think it's important just to take a moment and realise that this is something I can do. This is something that, you know, I do have the training for and um, just not to let it get the better of me. But I think it's also something that definitely comes with time. God, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, and Mandy, how much of that resonates with you in your world? Yeah, I think, I mean, Emily, you said an awful lot there. And I think it's absolutely, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. I think something that we often talk about you know is that you've got the basic stress and then you have this cumulative stress that builds up builds up builds up where we start to feel emotional perhaps that feelings of low accomplishment and we don't realize we're sort of suffering from that and then there's that acute stress but that burnout and that's the really worrying one isn't it because that's when we're over the the top of that stress curve and we're now into the, the actual breakdown situation um, and, and something that we were taught, which I always quite like, is the, the four A's of stress management is, you know, change the situation, avoid the stressor, or alter the stressor. Well, often there's nothing we can do about the stressor in that situation, because especially in an acute situation, you're 
having to deal with it, but you can change your reaction to it. So adapting to the stressor and accepting it. So I think those are really sort of good good things to base your to sort of hang your hat on there is that adapting your own behaviours around what you're seeing and things like that. And also if you start to feel that stress building up, often if we're suffering from cumulative stress, and then it's so much easier to actually feel that acute stress and not be able to deal with the situation when it actually shows itself, especially I can imagine as a paramedic. And that's certainly something we we would struggle with. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting that you sort of talk about that because it's you deal with everything else as well. So I got married and moved house, and oh my god, the congratulations! St- they're the two biggest stresses, aren't they? They're the, exactly, they're the two <laughs> biggest stresses, and wow, do I still feel stressed from it all? It's that kind of things still have to happen, and and that's that's a question I want to ask you, Mandy, because especially in your role, I I imagine that flying in a war zone. Even even without sort of proper danger, not knowing that there's danger around you is stressful enough. Then having an incident where you have to deal with something is stressful enough, and then you have to fly back is a different kind of stress. So what what kind of what does that cycle do to you as a person with a job to do? Um, well, interestingly, when you're perhaps in an area of conflict like where I flew, which was uh, in the Gulf uh, during the run up to the Second Gulf War. In some ways, you're trained to do it, you're getting on with the job, and you're disconnected from home life. So actually, yes, there could be stresses that are going on, but for myself, I was quite young, I wasn't married at the time, and I didn't have children. Give me stress now, which is living with two teenage boys, has been way more stressful than ever getting shot at by a surface-to-air missile in Iraq, which sounds crazy to say it but it's that cumulative stress and i think that build up of everyone else's stress that you're handling as well and managing different people's expectations and things like that and i think that's been way more stressful quite frankly but a really good example of that we have something called control the controllables so when things start to go wrong or there's a situation building you start to say what can i do about this situation now what can i control and if you can't do anything about it You've got to let it go. So control the controllables, and if I can't, let it go. And you use that as a mantra to yourself almost to some degree, because on one occasion we were travelling back across the Atlantic, we were doing air-to-air refuelling, and we heard that America had shut their airspace. Yes, the date was indeed September the 11th. And we had no idea what was happening. We had no concept of the bigger picture. But what we did think was... If, an, if the continent to the west is shut down, then all the aircraft that were heading in a westerly direction are being turned back. Does everyone have separation? Does everyone have procedural clearance? We didn't have the ability to speak to everybody. So now we're worried of a mid-air collision. So you control what you can control, which was get your radars out, scan the airspace in front of us, clear our passageway through the air, and then consequently you can build from that. Because... We still didn't understand what was happening. I mean, the next thing we heard was that there was an American aircraft carrier and um, there was a small aeroplane that was heading directly towards the carrier just off the south coast of the UK. And there's an exclusion mile of a zone of five miles around an aircraft carrier. And this, this little aeroplane hadn't read the notice to airmen that day, was heading directly towards the ship. The ship believed they were a terrorist. They were loading live weapons. And we heard on the radio that they were going to shoot this aircraft down in the UK, in peacetime, in the summer, beautiful September's day. And we're thinking, what on earth is happening? So we still don't understand what we're doing, but we can still 
control the controllables. Well, we can try to reach this aircraft. We can ask air traffic control, can we interject? Can we intercept the aircraft? Which we, we did. We dived down from 25,000 feet, headed straight towards the aircraft. And just before we got there, we managed to reach him on the radio, got him to train, change his track. And he had two minutes to run before he would have been shot down over pretty much the Isle of Wight on a September's day, on September the 11th. And, that, it, you know, these things are really important that we just keep in your mind that you're controlling the controllables. That's that's fascinating and uh, hor horrific at the same time because I, I couldn't imagine that situation of being in your in your aircraft, hearing that uh, catastrophic things are happening and it's just one situation after another, isn't it? You know, the, the airspace is shut down, then then this thing about an unidentified aircraft and this and that. And you, like you say, you just have to kind of, you have to eat your elephant, don't you, one bite at a time. You're never going to do everything at once. So you just have to control what you can at that point and then move on to the next bit and the next bit until you're done, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the only way that you can manage these situations. I'm sure it's the same in... in you know, being a paramedic as well, you'll come across a scene and especially if it's something like a, you know, an RTA or, you know, you're looking at it and you think, right, you know, you're taught, aren't you, Emily, to prioritise, to work out things. And that train really kick in in a, a situation like that. Yeah, absolutely. We always like have training on how to triage and how to sort of overview a scene and how to sort of prioritise who would need help first, what other resources are required so what information we have to relay back to control. Yeah, so we, we, we prioritise and have triage. And yeah, and it's it's interesting as well. I've seen over the years in, in our scene management, especially for those kind of larger incidents, the, the role of an incident commander has definitely grown and developed. So someone who doesn't touch a patient, but will tell crews like Emily where to go, where to put your patient, where is the... Where's the kind of loading space to get them onto vehicles to, to take them to hospital? And that sort of element has has grown massively. But you said something else as well, which I, I want to touch on, and it's it's experience versus training. So I, I want to kind of understand what your view is. So uh, one of the things that we have in our trust is we have a lot of newly qualified paramedics, a la Emily, and then we have a lot of clinicians who have been in the role 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. Uh, there's different training levels because the, the qualifications to become a paramedic have changed uh, over the years. So you didn't need a, a degree uh, until a few years ago. And I, I wonder what you can say, Mandy, about, about that. What, what's the importance of experience versus the importance of training and how do new people get that experience or the benefit of that experience as quickly as possible? So, yeah, training gets us to a certain level, as you say, and that's our base level. So now we can we're, now we can start to build experience and you can never, ever, you know, underestimate the power of experience. However, this is something that human factors really, really worked well with for us was, you know, say you have two people on a flight deck, captain, 20 years of experience, a first officer, new paramedic equivalent with, you know, I don't know under a year's experience. So we're looking at a very similar situation, perhaps to Emily being with a very experienced co-worker. Mm. And what happens, of course, is that there's an emergency. So we're in an emergency situation. What you would expect to happen was that the you would expect the captain to fly the aeroplane, but they don't. In an emergency situation, they hand over control immediately to the first officer, however much experience they've got, because 
the flying of the aircraft is the really easy bit. The bit that needs managing is seeing the bigger picture, understanding it, and actually keeping a really, really big situation awareness, the decision-making process and all the rest of it. But you can't do that if you're just flying the airplane. So you relinquish the, the what people would assume to be the hardest bit, flying the airplane, to your first officer, and you can see the bigger picture as the captain. So the other aspect of that, though, is the sharing of mental models. And this is something that I don't think had really been explored before we started doing human factors training, was that the captain then sees something, I've got years of experience, and I'm going to make a judgment call on that immediately. First officer sitting next to them sees something very, very different. If you don't share your mental model, the, the, the captain will go down a decision-making route based on what they are seeing. It is not necessarily the right decision-making route. The first officer will see something very different. Now, unless there is a culture of empowerment whereby, you know, we, we all feel that psychologically safe space to challenge, to um, actually use our voices. Everyone has a voice and we need it to be heard. So does Emily feel empowered enough because the culture is, is correct that she says, actually, I don't think it's right. Now, that takes a lot of strength of character if you're very, very junior. But at the same time, that can that can have been encouraged through training and through human factors training to have an understanding that just because you have loads of experience does not always make you right. In fact, it can be the newer person that sees something different. So I think there is a balance between, yes, experience, but it is about utilising the people on your team to get to the best results. Yeah, that's uh, that's hit the nail on the head perfectly and Emily you said earlier that you're you're quite glad that in your area you can you feel like you can approach people and and kind of talk about concerns and things is that right do you feel like you can kind of engage with different colleagues on different levels about concerns you have yeah very much so I think it's very open I always feel like if I had a concern or um, I was worried about something I'd always be able to sort of raise that I think, like Mandy was saying, it does take a lot of strength of character to sort of not challenge, but sort of suggest a different idea or a different way of looking at something to someone that has a wealth of experience. And I would like to think that it is something I would be able to do should sort of um, I would differ from what someone else would be thinking. However, I think that does also come with time. Obviously, like you were saying, I think it very much is a balance of experience and training and I've been fortunate to work with people that are very very experienced and have helped me and then also have been lucky to work with people a bit newer and I guess that's also sort of cycle of learning and trying to put back in what the things I've discovered back into into the service but I think it, it very much is a balance and I think the training like Mandy said will get you so far and then it's sort of on the road learning from there. Yeah definitely sorry Mandy you were going to say something yeah, actually, there's a, there's a, we've been taught a really, a, a great tool, actually, because it's shared across the whole, again, of our training, is that when we see something as a junior pilot, as a junior paramedic, and we want to escalate that, they've given us a tool, and it's called COOS. I am concerned, I'm uncomfortable, this is unsafe, and then stop. And basically, by having that, as soon as the more senior person hears the junior person saying, I'm concerned they're using that first level of an escalation of, you know, a situation. And that should ring alarm bells immediately to perhaps I'm not going on the right track here. Perhaps I, I need to, to listen to what 
you know, my first officer, my junior paramedic is saying, actually. And I think having tools like that, which are universally known, I think it's a really powerful thing to do. Uh, yeah, definitely. And it, it leads me on to a, a, another topic of conversation. And I want to start it off with, and I can't remember the details exactly, but it's the first story in your book of you were flying with your senior commander as a wing person. I wonder if you can just talk us through that a little bit, because I, I want to bring that on to something that we do. Sure. So I will make it very short and sweet and I won't elaborate. You have to read my book if you want the full details. But yeah, we were in Iraq. I was a junior team member and I was leading a mission, a combat mission at night, uh, a four ship as part of a huge coalition of aircraft. And we got targeted by a surface to air missile. We managed to evade the missile. Um, but basically the way it worked out there is that once we call it an aggressive act, which being shot at, I can tell you, is quite aggressive. I can um, imagine Once so. you experience an aggressive act, then you are basically entitled to prosecute an attack on a pre-assigned target. That's what the rules of engagement state. So basically, immediately, we are taking off our reconnaissance head that we've been using up to then, and we're now going into a bombing mode. I was, as I say, the most junior on my team with my boss as my number two and the senior executive officer as number three. So we're talking people two or three ranks higher than me, and yet I'm leading. Now, that's fine when the complexity of a mission was quite low, but quite frankly, when it shoots through the roof and the proverbial hits the fan, then actually you would assume that, again, the boss would take over. But they don't. They allow the junior team member or whoever's leading to continue. I had to make some enormous decisions that night. I knew I was going to be held accountable. I knew potentially lives on the ground would actually be sitting in my hands for the decisions I was going to make. And we, in the end, had to go and find an air-to-air tanker to to increase our options for staying airborne. And when I got to the tanker, it wasn't our British one. It was an American one. I'd never refuelled. I wasn't cleared to do this. I didn't have the ticket, should we say. But my boss said, have a go. And I did. I had two attempts to refuel and I wasn't successful. And so I said to my navigator, I'm stopping. And he said, press on. And that was a really interesting one because I had a very senior person in my backseat almost ordering me to some degree to say, carry on doing it. But in my heart of hearts, I knew if I did, it would prevent the rest of my team from having a successful outcome that night. So I overruled him and moved across onto the wing. And basically what transpired from the rest of that evening was it came out in the debrief afterwards. I mean, we had a successful mission. My number two and number three went on back into Iraq and there was a a direct hit on the target that we were pre-assigned. And I landed back at base feeling like a failure until he came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, that was the best call you can imagine. I'm sorry. And he was basically emotionally involved in the decision because his previous job, he'd been a trials officer for the exact weapon we were carrying and it had never been dropped in any theatre of war. So he was in some ways desperate to be the first person to drop this bomb in anger. So he's emotionally involved and no decisions, as we know, get ever a good decisions when there's emotion involved in it. And I wasn't emotionally involved, but I didn't know about that. So sometimes as the junior, you can see things differently. You can make decisions and, you know, it's about stepping up and actually utilising that empowerment and feeling strong enough of a character to, to, to challenge authority. And the first thing we happened when we landed was he went that was the best call you could possibly make well done and and that was a really really important learning point for me 
Definitely. And the, uh, thank you so much for that. And the reason that I ask about it is I want to talk about culture. And I want, we mentioned before we started the podcast about just culture. And I'm really interested in that. But one of the big topics that keeps coming up in the ambulance service is around uh, kind of seniority and, and ranking and the, the kind of the amount of things that people have on their shoulders. So one of the conversations that we keep having is uh, about kind of your senior officers, you know, your, your experienced clinicians turning up on scene and they've got lots of pips and cartwheels and, and stuff. And uh, I'm not saying that this is everyone, but some people, what they feel they have to do is kind of hands off the patient and let the senior person in, but the senior person doesn't want to, to interfere. They're, they're there to support like your senior officers were, were on that occasion. And I, I wanna talk about how a just culture is so important to, to allow you as the junior in that case to make the decisions that will impact your senior officers and not fear kind of repercussion or anything like that? Yeah, um, so basically the, something that aviation realised a long time ago was that the culture was flawed. There was a blame culture and while a blame culture exists then no one will ever learn. So they introduced a statement and they, they said it's a just culture. And I, I can read it you out because I, I know it off by heart. It's a culture that recognises that competent professionals make mistakes and it acknowledges that those same competent professionals will develop unhealthy norms in the form of shortcuts, routine rule violations, but there's zero tolerance for reckless behaviour. So what we're getting there is a statement of fact there's a line in the sand, anything to the left of it. If you make an honest mistake, please tell us. And I always relate that to the iceberg effect. And I think it's a lovely visual illusion that you can imagine is that the top of the iceberg is the one big event. It's the loss of life that, you know, the one incident that happens. Beneath that, there are 30 near misses where there is a negative occurrence associated with it. But beneath your waterline, 13300 are all the near misses. If you have the right culture, and people start talking about their near misses and their 300 events, and they talk about it in a different way. I was working with the police recently, and we were, I said, okay, we've got 300 police officers in the room. I said, put your hand up if you want to share the, least, the latest mistake you've made. Guess what happened? I, I did it. I set it up deliberately. Tumbleweed, no one talking. Of course they wouldn't. Then we started talking about the culture, about adapting a culture, about this 13300. I was like, so exciting almost when you have a near miss when there's no negative outcome and you share it because it's almost an exciting opportunity to share learning and I said gosh who's had any really good 300 events oh my goodness the room all these hands went up in the room and I thought all we're doing is changing the language you're changing it from a a blame language of who's made a mistake to who's got a brilliant 300 event my god it was so it was actually, I was almost bowled over. I then said, right, well, I think we need to work on tables here and capture all of these. And about an hour later, I was having to stop them talking about their near misses. Well, that is amazing, isn't it? That's just in, what, a half an hour session of talking about a mindset change. You've changed the language and therefore you've changed how they're viewing the mistake or the near miss. Once you have that, if the culture is there, then you actually have data you can understand the risk and make risk-based decisions and you know where to put your ever-decreasing pot of money into the right decisions to, to limit those risks. So having the right culture at the start, though, is really, really important because that's how we get facts, that's how we get reports, and that's how we get data. 
absolutely and and i love i I love what you say there it's it's data it's 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 data points that you can help triangulate with with other factors so your instant reporting metrics we really want to focus more on like the patient voice as well because they're a data point they're a huge data point they're the people that we're involved in and whether they've had a a positive or not so positive experience really impacts on on everything so uh, emily you you talk about the the kind of culture in in your station do you feel like like you can talk about sort of error positively yeah definitely i think managers are absolutely lovely and all the people in my area are really really nice that i would feel happy and not embarrassed to talk about any near misses that i may have had i think as long as some learning comes from it as long as i identify what happened and how I'll make sure it doesn't happen again, then that's very important. I think the culture is very important, but I think in sort of our area that we are definitely getting there. I think everything takes time. I think no one near my sort of area is a very blame heavy. I think it's very much a, we'll learn from this. We'll sort of change and adapt how we do something to ensure that it doesn't happen again but I do feel very happy I do feel very open that I could chat to anyone and I would know that if I were to talk to someone about a near miss I know they would see it as a learning opportunity as opposed to a I can't believe you nearly did sort of x y or z I think sometimes I can feel nervous of what other people think of me and I think that is a human factor in itself that I think at times has held me back I think I'm not necessarily well, I can be intimidated by someone's experience. I think if I'm working with someone who's very experienced, I'm obviously always keen to know what they're thinking and their opinion. And I think uh, sometimes that can cause me to feel a little unsure. I think I want people I want people to have the confidence in me that I know what I'm doing and that they think that I'm good at my job. And I think sometimes the pressure of that can make me feel a little bit nervous. But yes, definitely, I think... I'm able and open to chat to people about any kind of near misses or mistakes. And I think it'd be received as a, we'll learn from this as opposed to a blame. And that's really positive to hear, Emily. And I know that your managers will be slipping you a tenner right now for saying such positive things <laughs> about them. <laughs> it, it's fair to say that as an organisation, we we are not there yet overall. I know that Emily works in a, an area that is really hot on this kind of topic. But we are definitely getting there as as an ambulance service. And I'm, I'm very proud to be taking us on that journey. But Mandy, in your experience, I guess there's two parts to this question. What can people like Emily bring who are on the front line to that culture? And then what do the managers and the senior people need to bring to that culture? Because is it fair to say that, that people need to bring those levels need to bring two different elements to create that culture? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you especially see this with um, younger people that are coming through, like Emily. You know, they've got a passion, they're dedicated, they're committed, as are everybody with, as is everybody within the NHS as well. So my sister's um, a palliative care consultant, and medical director, and, you know, her and I talk human factors until we're both blue in the face, basically, because it's incredible. So you know, actually having that passion, people go into this business because they want to help people, you know. So a lot of it is about understanding why something is happening as well. So um, I think as, as the leaders, it's about fostering that open, transparent culture. It's about, you know, balancing perhaps innovation and risk taking 
against the avoidable lapses in procedures and things like that. But it's about, within your team, it's about overcoming any resistance that we have to change as well. So I do know that the, the world of the paramedics is, is really hot on this, as you said, Jordan, and it's fantastic, but it's not across the border within the NHS at all. And I certainly see bits where I get asked to speak. So it's about trying to build a trust within a reporting system as well. So people don't feel that, you know, my manager is saying one thing, but I know that if I put this report in, actually it's going to be a completely different kettle of fish at a higher level. You know, am I going to be sort of disciplinary action for what I've done when it was a mistake? So I think once you have this just culture in place and you've seen it going up through the stages of the, because there's three ages of reporting once you really get that just culture. The, the first one where people put reports in about equipment because they're testing out the system. And then when it works, they go, right, I'm going to comment about other people and say that it was a shift pattern. It was a handover that was poor. That's why it happened. And then when we finally see that we have complete trust in a system, then we comment about us. And it's that third age of reporting that you're trying to get the data on is when people say, I made a mistake. And so long as we see the leaders acting exactly by the, tr the just culture, all you need is one incident like the paediatrician that actually ended up going down in the criminal courts where an action which was a mistake, mm. then as soon as that happens, then quite frankly, you're pulling the rug out of all the hard work that's ever been done to build trust within the system. So that's really important that, it, you know, actually you're completely transparent in how you're dealing with things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Emily, would you, would you say that that's kind of what you see or what you want to see more of? Yes, yeah, definitely. I think, like I said before, I've always been very happy and, and able to speak to managers about any kind of mistakes or, or near misses that, that may have occurred. But I think I think they've always sort of acted as they said they would. I'm not, if I made a genuine mistake, I would be happy that it would be sort of dealt as such and that it would then be uh, spoken about and debriefed and it would become a learning point as opposed to me assuming that it would go further or go sort of down a a different route but yeah so I, I do agree no that's brilliant thank you so I'm I'm aware of time we've been talking for about 50 minutes now and I, I get a lot of mixed messages about how long people want these podcasts to be some people want them to be two and a half hours and some people want them to be 20 minutes and I just don't know where to sit them. So I'll, I'll kind of start wrapping up now. I, I was going to play a game of top trumps, but Mandy, I think you'll win on everything. Um, <laughs> even down to the, never, even never. Down to the amount I of wheels that you have. <laughs> even down to the amount of wheels that you have on your vehicle. Like I think you beat a DSA quite dramatically. Um, but I, 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 guess I, I guess the last thing I want to ask is about... Um, just generally, if you, if both of you had 30 seconds to run into a room of people and give your tips or advice, what, what would it be? And I'll, I'll start with you, Emily, because you're a, you're a newly qualified paramedic. You've, you've been through this kind of process. If there was, if there, if there was people like you starting day one on, on the, the paramedic course or the tech course or whatever, what one piece of advice would you, would you give to them? Wow. Um, Sorry, I know that's a cheeky question yeah. to ask, <laughs> just out of the blue. That's harsh. <laughs> yeah. I think there's so many things that have probably been sort of told to me across the years that I've, I've taken and been very, very helpful. But I think if I had to sort of think of one thing that I would say is just to be very, very open and able to communicate with everyone. I think 
it's important that you're able to communicate with your crew, your managers, your colleagues. And I think being being open and and willing and, you know, I think is going to get the best out of everyone. And I think if you show willingness to learn and be involved and able to talk about things that go well, don't go well, then I think everyone is going to respect you. And, you know, I think that's a very difficult one, but I think, I guess, being open and, and doing your best to communicate with everyone would be, would be a good one. And sort of something else I say about early with the whole, I can feel quite sort of stressed. Sometimes I feel my bandwidth is a bit overloaded. I think taking a second just to sort of remind yourself that you can do this and everyone feels stressed sometimes, everyone feels like they can't do it and sometimes become emotionally involved in it, but just know that you absolutely can. It's just a case of maybe taking a second to remind yourself and, and step away if you need to. Um, but yeah, I think being open to talk about everything, willingness to learn and good communication. See, it's a harsh question, but it comes out with some amazing <laughs> answers, some really incredible answers. So thank you so much, Emily. Mandy, what about you? You've got some people who are on day dot of their training course. What, what one bit of advice would you give? I think Emily's advice is excellent. That was the, what I was going to say, actually, was to ensure that you have a voice. But the other one I would say is find someone that you respect, uh, that you admire, and seek them out, whether there's a formal mentoring program or uh, informal, and actually ask them in some ways to take them out for a coffee. Say, can I just grab you? Can we take? Can I take you out for a coffee and just say, look, informally, will you be my mentor? Because actually, you can learn so much. And just having a sounding board for when things that you want to talk about, um, but it has to be someone that you admire and you respect and that you get on well with. That there's that chemistry between you rather than someone that's just been in a formal process and given to you as a mentor, um, seek one out. And I think that would be the best bit of guidance I could give to people, um, not just on careers and where you're going on that, but when there's anything bothering you, you know, anything at all, but it's in a professional nature. I think that would be a really good thing to do. I think that's a fantastic bit of advice. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. I will wrap it up there, but I cannot thank you both enough. I think uh, personally, it's been fascinating to kind of get these two different worlds and smash them together and kind of see where the similarities are. Mandy, for you, if people want to know more about you and kind of understand you a bit more, where can they go? So I do have a website, which is just www.hicksonltd, so hicksonlimited.com. But I am on Facebook. I have a Facebook page, Mandy Hickson Speaker. I'm on Twitter, Mandy Hickson. I'm on LinkedIn, Mandy Hickson. And so any of those, I'm even on Instagram as Mandy Hickson Speaker as well. So if you do want to get in touch, even if it's a small question, you know, I, I'm really happy to answer anything. My book is out, which is An Officer, Not a Gentleman. I'm not just saying that as a plug, but there are loads of really good learning points in there in regards to error management, about cultural change that we saw happening throughout my time in the military um, and where we are now compared to where we were then. So again, I'd love to, you know, answer any questions that anyone has on the book or any feedback as well. So please feel free to get in touch. I would love to hear from you. I can vouch on the book. I've not finished it yet, but it's so interesting for, as, as a patient safety specialist to kind of look at these points, which is why I was so keen to have you on. So thank you so much. And Emily, when you've written your book, we'll have you back on so you can talk about it. And then we'll ask you where we can find out more about you. Is that fair? Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Maybe I'll have a website then too. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's essential just to have a website regardless. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thank bo you. Both of you, thank you so much for your time. I, I genuinely appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you.
Thanks, Jordan. Thank and thanks, Emily. Great to talk to you. Good luck with the career. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you.